church, Acts 1, Jesus said he was commissioning his covenant people with a new mission, an outward focus, which was making sure that people from around the globe, all the earth, heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That applies to us today as well, of course, and part of that has to do with not only funding missionaries in different parts of the world, but it has to do with personal evangelism. We're going to have an evangelism, really a workshop here on Wednesday evening, October 5th, 6.30 to 9. The Gideons are putting that on. It's a limited size class, and we need to get them our list of names, folks, that will be participating. If that strikes you, if you have interest or ability to attend that, would you let me know in person today, or my email is on the study sheet, email me today. We need to get that wrapped up and attendance listed. Thanks. I have a good friend, his name is Joe, and uh, we realized in high school uh, that our birthdays were a mere two days apart, and uh, come to find out, not only were our birthdays two days apart, we were born in the same hospital. Our mothers, in fact, shared the same hospital room. We found out as we became friends in high school. My birthday, no gifts needed, is December 5th. So two days later, his is December 7th. Now, years ago, my friend Joe wed his lovely wife, Mary Beth. Her birthday is September 11th. Now, put your history thinking caps on. December 7th and September 11th. What do those two dates have in common? Those are catastrophic historical dates in American, really, and world history, right? So Pearl Harbor was bombed. World War II for the United States began in the Pacific Arena on December 7th, day of infamy. And uh, 21 years ago, September 11th, of course, the, the terrorists uh, hijacking airplanes here in the United States. It's kind of a cheesy way to introduce, you know, there are dates in history. Somebody wakes up, you know, December 7th or September 11th, somebody woke up and it's another day. The day begins as another day. But they don't know, you know, history is changing on that day. Their life will never be the same from that day forward on those dates in American history. Friends, there, there's a date in history, world history, that is more momentous than those that have affected us profoundly in the world also in our modern era. What we call Pentecost Sunday in or about the year 33 A.D. is more momentous than those American catastrophes. In fact, it's right up there. If you think about this, Genesis 12, when God calls a guy named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, world history changed. And the world didn't know it, but when God called Abram, he was establishing through Abram in the coming generations his personal presence on earth that would affect all of history, still does to us today. And then if you think of something like the giving of the law at Sinai, uh, around 1446 B.C., again, this was an earth-shaking, world-changing date because suddenly, from that point on, the revelation of, of God in the ways of do these things and be blessed with this covenant people, that shaped not only the Jews, but of course it shaped world history from that point on. Well, Pentecost Sunday is right up there in its importance in the history of the world. Friends, the the world changed on what we call Pentecost Sunday. The, not just Israel, not just Jerusalem, world and world history changed because of what occurred on Pentecost Sunday around 33 
A.D. I think it's possible, in fact, I think it's probable that most of us read through the book of Acts and you get through Acts 2 and you read this story and you know it's important, but I think, I think probably most of us fail to grasp the singular importance, the singular significance of what occurred on Pentecost Sunday after Jesus' resurrection. We're going to be talking about that this morning. At last week in chapter 1 of Acts, and we're in a new series act out and act out the book of Acts, but also the outward call of God through Jesus in mission to the church. That's really the emphasis of selected passages. So last week, we realized Jesus told his disciples, there's a new mission. There's a new mission, and for you to accomplish this new mission, you'll need a new power. And so the new mission is to take the gospel outside the confines of Judaism. And they had, a lot, they had a lot of trouble getting around this concept, not just Jews. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the new power would be the third person of the Trinity, would be the promise of the Holy Spirit given not only by Jesus in the New Testament gospels, but also promised to the Jews throughout the Old Testament as well. He said that's the power you're going to need to accomplish that new mission. In the balance of chapter 1, the disciples did what he said. Hey, they, He said, don't leave Jerusalem. You hang out in Jerusalem. They did that. They're praying together. And they also replaced Judas the traitor was replaced with Matthias as the 12th apostle. And then that'll bring us to chapter 2 where we'll start in just a minute. Let me tell you where we're going. <clears throat> this is a little... Sorry. <clears throat> Mike's phlegm. <clears throat> this is a little content heavy, especially on the first two points. And then also, guys, we're going to be talking about some things this morning that have innumerable potential bunny trails, none of which we will pursue. There's not time. Okay, so if you're freaked out by some things I'm saying this morning, just stay in your seat. I have had people walk out when I've taught before. <clears throat> hold your seat, and we'll get through this morning, okay? But So a little content heavy, and then we're talking about things that are emotional tripwires for lots of people today as well when we're talking about things of the Spirit. So the three big rocks, the day of Pentecost related to God's calendar and timetable. This is sort of singular, we'll treat this. The unmistakable arrival of the Holy Spirit, how they knew this is it, we'll treat that as well. And then the third, God's raising all believers to the status of prophet and priest in this new age. If, if you read some passages and you yawn and you say, yeah, there's a priesthood, and you say, no, you don't get it, that believers in the new age are raised to the level of prophets and priests. That's what the text says. That's mind-shattering. That's earth-changing. And that's the age you and I live in. So information heavy, and we won't be able to nuance everything as might be good, maybe for another day. So open your Bibles or your apps. We're going to start in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, and this really sets the stage for everything that follows. Disciples all together still in Jerusalem. When the day of Pentecost arrived, and we'll talk about the specifics of that in just a moment, the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. doesn't say it is a wind. says it sounds like a mighty rushing wind. Filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire. doesn't say it is fire, but that's sure what it looks like. Appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the age of the Spirit began on the day of Pentecost and that's significant. 
the, the, the new covenant age, or what we sometimes call the day of grace, started on that day with this event. So this is history-less, so this is content-heavy. So why is that a big deal? And, and here's in part why it's a big deal. So for about 1,500 years, Israel, off and on, they're not, the, the nation's not faithful. They didn't do this all the time the way it says. But for 1,500 years, off and on, they've been celebrating the feasts that God commanded them to. There's spring feasts and there's fall feasts. So on the spring feasts, Passover started an eight-day celebration of Jewish feasts every year. So you celebrate the Passover, and remember, original Passover, Jews are slaves in Egypt, and God says, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to judge Egypt, but you're going to survive, and how do you survive? The blood of the lamb is over your door. So the original Passover, the blood of the lamb spares you. And then ever since, once a year, the 14th day of the first month, they would slay the lamb and they would have that special meal at night, remembering that we were spared death and God delivered us from Egypt. So that's Passover. But guys, the very next day begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when you read the Gospels, what you'll see is these two things are sometimes spoken of synonymously. Sometimes these eight days, because they're one after the other, Feast of Unleavened Bread is a week, but Passover is the day before. So sometimes those eight days collectively are called Passover. Sometimes they're called Unleavened Bread because they're joined. It's one period of eight days. So you start with Passover. The very next day begins the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. So go back to Egypt again. You remember before the Exodus, God said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to get rid of all the leaven that's in your house. And leaven probably represents two different things. One is it represents sin throughout Scripture. Typically, it represents sin. So you're clearing yourself and your household of personal sin. But it also, if you make sourdough bread, you get the concept here. The yeast also represents, because they did sourdough bread, it represents your tie to the past. And their recent past was slavery. So that week-long feast of unleavened bread, it signified Israel is clearing itself out of sin and it's being cut off from its past of slavery. So that's the next day, Passover, and then the feast of unleavened bread begins. And guys, the very next day is a Sunday. And that Sunday, this is every year, these are the spring feasts, that Sunday is first fruits during the week-long celebration of unleavened bread. The high priest went out to the field. This is the spring harvest of barley. He cuts the first stalks of barley. You remember God said in the law, everything you have, you, the land, everything is mine. And one of the ways you acknowledge that is you give me the first of everything. And so the first of the spring barley harvest, those stalks were cut. The priest came in and he waved them before Yahweh. So this is the first fruits, Lord. They belong to you. And we're signifying that through this feast. So take the spring feasts on the Jewish calendar and apply them to Jesus last week on earth. And what do you see happening, of course? You see Jesus fulfilling Passover, don't you? Because John has told us, John 1.29 has told us when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then later in 1 Corinthians 5.7, the Apostle Paul writes this, Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. So in Jesus' person and work that last week, he fills up these three Jewish feasts. 
He is the Passover lamb. Now remember, they have a meal on Passover night. So pause for a little confusion. So their days aren't like our days, right? When does the Jewish day start? Sundown. Sundown. So when they had Passover meal, it's Thursday night, what we call Thursday night. And Jesus dies the next day before sundown, it's still what? It's still Passover. Jesus dies as the Passover lamb. He ate the Passover meal. He becomes the Passover lamb. And what happens the next day with his body? Jesus is sinless, right? He who knew no sin became sin for us. God imputed our sins on him. But he's sinless. He's without yeast. And his body is planted in the ground the first day of unleavened bread. Jesus has been sown, if you will, in the earth as unleavened bread, the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. Sorry. So Jesus, Jesus represents and Jesus brings to pass, as it were, this ability to be without sin before God. And then what happens on the third day on the feast of first fruits? Jesus rises from the dead. He is the first fruits. In fact, you can read this from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus fills up the Jewish feasts. In his life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus fills up the Jewish spring feasts. So what's the next feast? Pentecost is the next feast. This is out of Leviticus 23. And this is, Leviticus 23 is the best timetable in the law about the Jewish feasts and calendar. And this is what God said. Count seven full weeks, seven periods of seven, from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. This is during, this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is this time frame. Count 50 days, and, and by the way, why do we call Pentecost Pentecost? It's not a Jewish word, Hebrew word. It's a Greek word. It means 50, and this is why it comes from right here. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So 49 plus 1, put it on the first day of the week. You shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah of flour. They shall be fine flour, baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. So... On Pentecost, the first grain of the summer wheat harvest was cut. And it was baked into bread loaves. And those, like the barley stalks, those were brought in and they were waved before the Lord. As first fruits, it anticipated the rest of the summer wheat harvest because the first fruits, of course, are just the beginning of what follows. So just as God filled up the earlier spring feasts in Jesus' person and work, he now filled up the Feast of Pentecost in sending the Holy Spirit after Jesus' resurrection to present to God the first fruits of a new harvest. So what you see happening on Pentecost Sunday, Jesus is the first fruits, but there's a new harvest occurring because now God's not just saving primarily Jews or Gentiles as, as Jews, but he's saving a new harvest, as it were, from all over the earth. That's the new thing. That's the new harvest. The harvest started with the disciples and the Jewish crowd, which we'll read about in just a minute. But this is interesting, isn't it? Uh, you and I are part of the same harvest, are we not? Pentecost started something that's still going on today. 
So the harvest, the first fruits that they saw there anticipated the rest of the summer wheat harvest. And friends, that's you and me. That's right down to today. We still live in what's called the age of the Spirit, the new covenant, the church age. It's still going on. We're part of that same harvest. What you and I have and know and experience today is seamlessly connected to what happened on Pentecost Sunday. There's no distinction. It's just a matter of time. And if you read later in Acts 2, which we won't look at this morning, the evidence to the disciples that Jesus was ensconced as victor in heaven was that he would send the Holy Spirit. When they get the Spirit, it's proof to them that Jesus is the reigning king in heaven. That comes out in Acts 2 as well. So there's a divine harvest in which Jesus is now calling men and women, boys and girls, to himself, and he's doing so by filling and sealing them with his own spirit. So this is why the background, this is why I think there's a payoff on this. God is working on his own timetable. God has a timetable. He has a calendar. And part of it is connected to the Jewish feasts. And just as in the person and work of Christ, the Jewish spring feasts were filled up, Pentecost included, there are three Jewish fall feasts that no doubt on God's calendar will also be filled up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in the seventh month on the Jewish calendar, it starts day one with the feast of the blowing of trumpets. That's all they do. On the 10th day, it's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on the 15th day, it begins the Feast of Tabernacles. So I assume, and I'm not getting into how this works, uh, there's trumpets associated with the appearing of Jesus for the church. There's a Day of Atonement. Remember, atonement for the Jews as a nation hasn't happened. I'll talk about something else here in just a minute related to that. Um, And then this ingathering or this uh, Feast of Tabernacles, perhaps that's Jesus instituting his millennial reign. Not entirely clear, but just to say this, what's happening in your life and mine, it's not haphazard. And the stuff that's going on around the world or in your life and mine, it's all contained in a much bigger plan that God has. And his plan and his purpose is continuing on seamlessly. And this age won't end until God says this is the last day. And the fall feast won't be fulfilled until God says, and this is when we're doing this as well. So as the world is falling apart around us, guys, we should console ourselves that God is working his timetable just as he ordained sovereignly before this earth began. Before there was sin, before there was Abram or Israel or anything else, God had already written his script, his drama, And we're in it. And so that should give us a sense of security and peace when it looks like things are going to hell around us. And they often are. And we wonder, is God still in control? Does God know what's going on in my life or around the world today? And guess what? He does. But he has a plan and he has a purpose and everything is working towards those ends. I'll point out, so Pentecost, 50 days, but seven weeks of seven days each. Something for you to look at on another day. In Daniel 9, God told the prophet Daniel that he had a timeline for the nation of Israel. And just like Pentecost, forget the 50 for just a minute, he says seven weeks of seven, God told Israel there's 70 periods of seven ordained for the Jewish nation. 
And part of that prophecy said this, from the going forth of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, this was given during the captivity in Babylon, to Messiah the Prince being cut off and having nothing would be, I'm extrapolating, but it's 483 years. And from the time Artaxerxes gave a decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Jesus' crucifixion was 483 years. There's a seven-year period left. Just to say, God has a time frame and nothing disrupts it. And we're in it. And your life is in it. And my life is in it. And Pentecost is just one of those great reminders. God's doing His thing in His time frame. God's program continues right on time and we need to remind ourselves that we are part of a great drama. A story written by God with its own acts and scenes. And we each play our part, but our parts are merely small elements in a greater narrative. We should humble ourselves by reminding ourselves that life isn't all about me. Life isn't all about us. It's about God. It's about the Lord Jesus. And we are supporting roles in their grand drama. And the curtains are rising and falling in that drama and those acts just as God intended. Knowing this should encourage us to trust God when life seems to be falling apart around us. God's plans are right on time. And you certainly see that on Pentecost Sunday. We'll see it in the future as well. Look at verses 2 through 4 again, just related to the arrival of the Spirit specifically, and note the description of what that looked like. There's a sound like a mighty rushing wind fills the house. And it's clearly heard outside that their home as well because it gets the attention of other people. A divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues, other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now guys, the, the disciples gathered in that upper room, uh, they knew their Bibles, you know, the, the Tanakh, the, the Law, the Prophets and the Writings, that's the old, we, we call the Old Testament was the Jewish Bible. Guys, they knew their Bible. So if I'm sitting and Jesus has made a promise that something's going to happen and I get a sound like a rushing wind, what might I think if I'm a Jew that knows my Bible? God used a great wind to divide the Red Sea in the Exodus. God used a great wind to feed Israel in the wilderness with quail. He drove them in with a mighty wind. God's presence at Sinai was not only fire, it was like a storm coming down. God's appearance to Job in the Old Testament was as a mighty whirlwind. And God's presence at Sinai with Elijah in 1 Kings 19 in part was this mighty wind. So when the Jews are in that room and they hear this crazy loud sound that sounds like a wind and they know Jesus has promised, I'm coming, I think that's their first clue. This is just like what God did before when he showed up. He says, also, tongues of fire appeared on each one. When you read the Old Testament, you realize God re repeatedly sort of shows up. He gives the, the essence or the indication of his appearance through this appearance of fire. And again, they know their Bible. When God made a covenant with Father Abraham, what did God look like in Genesis 15? Because it describes God's appearance. It says it looked like a smoking, fiery oven passing between the pieces of the animal carcass as he made a unilateral covenant with Abraham and his heirs. It looked like a fire, fire in an oven. 
When uh, God showed up to Moses in Exodus 3, it looks like a fire, but the bush isn't consumed. The appearance there again, God's appearance is seen as fire. Pillar of fire with Israel in the Exodus. So these guys are looking around and they see what looks like fire above every one of them. How does God show up in the Old Testament? Oftentimes it looks like fire, and here it is. He says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll just point out a couple of things. One is this. Specifically in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when God talks about a new covenant that Israel would be blessed with, it's not just about the forgiveness of sin, it's about the reception of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36.27 puts it this way, I will put my spirit within you. That's not Old Testament, that's new covenant. That's the age of the spirit. I will put my spirit within you, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Now, Peter's going to quote from Joel in just a minute. We'll look at that as well. But also, Jesus had told them in John 14, the night of his last supper, that Passover supper he celebrated with them, he said, you're going to get the Holy Spirit. He dwells with you. With you is one thing. That's next to me. But he will be in you. So the promise of the Spirit isn't just that you'll have the Spirit next to you. The Spirit will be in you. And then that last, they spoke in other tongues by the Spirit. And think about this, again, Old Testament historic perspective for just a minute. When Adam and Eve are formed, they don't learn to read and speak. They're created with speech. They can interact with God and they can speak to each other. And there's one language on the earth until Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. And it's God that multiplies language. Why? Because he wants to separate people. Because he says if they stick together, there's one people with one speech, their evil will spread so rapidly, it'll be disastrously destructive. So this is what I'll do. I'm going to multiply languages. Those languages will inherently divide people. They won't be able to fall into full corruption as quickly as they might otherwise. But now what do you have? We said this last week. What's God doing today? Well, God's redeeming people from every group, tribe, language, tongue, kindred on the face of the earth. That's the new covenant age we live in. The age of the Spirit, the gospel is going out on all the earth. And what do you have here? Remember, Pentecost was one of the Jewish feasts when Jews would come in from all over the Roman Empire because they were scattered. They were scattered from modern-day Iran and Iraq through Turkey, the whole Mediterranean coast of the Roman Empire. They were throughout so Jews coming into Jerusalem came with their own home language, which was all kinds of languages. That was their native tongue. And on Pentecost, the disciples are speaking languages they didn't learn, but people who heard them, we'll talk about this in just a second, heard them describing the glories of God in their native language, and they know these guys are all Galileans. These aren't the languages they grew up with or they speak naturally. And what you've got is this appearance of uh, God is now going to reconcile the world, not as Jews and Gentiles, but as one new man. We talked about this last week. Ephesians 2 and 3. He's broken down the wall, the law that used to separate Jews from Gentiles, and now it's one new person. It's what we call the church. We take this for granted, but this was entirely new, and it's going to be represented by people of every language across the globe. And so what do you have when the Spirit's given? These people are speaking the languages that represent those scattered across the earth. And God is now 
reclaiming scattered humanity into one new body, which is the church, the body of Christ. That's, that's, it's the opening salvo, if you will, of God showing I'm, language will no longer keep people from hearing about me and coming to faith and joining this one new work of grace. Jesus' work on the earth now is uniting divided humanity into one new man. And by the way, this, this, um, the disciples speaking languages they didn't learn, this comes up again in Acts 10 and Acts 19. So in Acts 10, Peter is talking to Gentiles. And as he does, they not only believe, but it says, the text says the Holy Spirit falls on them And how does Peter know they get the Spirit? Because they start speaking in languages they didn't know, just like Acts 2. And so Peter understands that means that the Spirit that God gave us, he gave them, that nothing separates us anymore. Because again, Jews understanding Gentiles get to come in, this is radical and they don't get a hold of this very easily. But Peter realizes they got the same Spirit we did. And in Acts 19, the same thing happens again when Paul meets former disciples of John the Baptist. They start doing the same thing. In each case, it's clear to anyone hearing and seeing that the Spirit has come, and the Spirit is one giving them the ability to speak languages they didn't have before. And by the way, on this whole thing with tongues and languages, this is where you get dicey depending on your theology, your background, good, bad, ugly, and all things we'll call charismatic, and I'm going to qualify this in just a little bit. So that's the thing, though. The Spirit is given. There's absolutely no ambiguity. This is the Holy Spirit. The appearance represents Old Testament appearances of God. Jesus said we'll reach the earth with the gospel, and they're reaching the earth through those Jews who are from the Roman Empire, speaking all those different languages. They're hearing from the same group of people, people who hadn't grown up hearing those languages. Uh, Look at verses 11 through 21, and I'm going to parse this a little bit, uh, jumping through for time's sake. People hear the disturbance. They hear these guys out in the streets proclaiming God's glory, and it draws a crowd. Uh, I think this is starting at verse 11. The crowd says, We hear them, the disciples, telling in our tongues, our languages, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? That would have been the key question. What is going on? Others mocking said they're filled with new wine. They're drunk. That's the deal. There are always naysayers, are there not, to what God's up to. Uh, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose, it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning, there hasn't been time for that. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So now Peter pretty much quotes verbatim Joel 2, verses 38, 28 through 32. Quoting Joel from the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy." Go down to verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter tells the crowd there on Pentecost Sunday, what you're witnessing is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy 
The Spirit is being poured out, and, and here's the key, not on some, but on all. Not on some, but on all. The Spirit's presence would mean a new level of God communicating with His own, He says specifically, prophesying twice, visions and dreams. What used to be restricted to a small class of prophets would now be for all. So remember, there's all kinds of things about this. Uh, in the Old Testament, well, from creation on, everything that God does is accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. So people believed in Yahweh in the Old Testament and they came to saving faith. That was the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1-2, it's the Spirit hovering over the surface of the deep, bringing about the works of God in creation. So the Holy Spirit's always there. But what do you see that presence look like in the Old Testament on people? So this is what it looks like on what group of people. Is it everybody in the Old Testament? Not by a long shot. The Spirit is on prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings get the Holy Spirit. You remember when someone was anointed as king, the oil symbolized the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. But what percentage of Israel, of God's covenant people, did prophets, priests, and kings represent? Not very many, right? They're the exception, not the rule. So Joel, Peter's quoting Joel, and Joel says... This age of the Spirit is here. The Spirit's been given. And what does that mean? It means everybody gets the Spirit. What was reserved for a few in the Old Testament is now true of every believer. And guys, this is the earth-shaking element of this passage. What was true of only prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament is now true of every believer in Jesus Christ. If you have the Spirit, Romans 8 says, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. Ephesians tells us the Spirit seals us as gods. If you have the Spirit, you've been elevated to the level of Old Testament prophets and priests on whom the Holy Spirit was given for their role in God's economy, what they were up to. So the Holy Spirit is not only given on all, not only poured out on all, but the Spirit is poured out on all, and the Holy Spirit is in all. This is entirely new. This has not been seen before the day of Pentecost, but this is true from that day forward. Like Old Testament prophets, God now reveals Himself and His purposes and plans to all by the Spirit. Old Testament prophets routinely remember receive God's communications often by dreams and visions I think that's why it's used by Joel and then those same prophets spoke for God to others they prophesied they spoke God's word to others in the new age of the spirit all can hear from God and all can speak for God by the spirit this is different this is new this has never been the truth the occasion before listen to this from numbers 11 during the Exodus years, Moses is the singular anointed, the Spirit is on Moses, anointed Moses to lead God's people. But Moses has a complaint to God, and he says, basically, there's one of me and there's a lot of them. You know, if you're a parent of a large family, there's one of me or there's two of us and there's a lot of them. We're overwhelmed, he says to God. And so God says, okay, here's what we'll do. You take 70 
of the recognized leaders of Israel, the elders of Israel, you come out here, come outside the camp of Israel, you come out with them, and this is what I'll do. I'll take of the spirit that's on you, and I'll put it on them. And I'll multiply my work because I'll put my spirit not just on you now, I'll put it on 70 other leaders. You guys will split up the labor. Sounds like a great plan. Okay, so on the day they go out, only two don't. Two of the elders that are supposed to be out there with Moses and the rest, they're not there. And this is what happens. Verse 27, Numbers 11. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. This is like Acts. They're somehow declaring what God's up to in ways that everybody who hears them knows this isn't them. This is the Spirit of God on them doing something that only the Holy Spirit can do. And Moses is the only guy we've seen this do before. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. They broke the rules. They shouldn't be doing this. They're not out here with us, they're back there in the camp. Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? He, he, Moses infers that Joshua's like, this should just be on you. And, and here's Moses' reply. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses' desire, his prayer, and I would argue a prayer that God answered on Pentecost, Moses' desire was that not just him and not just 70 elders was that everyone would get the Spirit like they had. That God would reveal Himself to them, dreams and visions. That God would speak through them, prophecy. <clears throat> Excuse me. That was Moses' wish and prayer for God's covenant people. And that is exactly what happens on Pentecost Sunday. Everybody gets the Spirit. So are you a male or female? You get the Spirit. Are you a son or a daughter? You get the Spirit. Are you a male or female servant? You get the Spirit. And what does that mean? Now this, we'll qualify this in just a minute. Some of you are uncomfortable, I'm sure. <clears throat> Everybody has the ability, because they have the Spirit, to hear from God. Everyone has the ability, because they have the Spirit of God, to speak for God to others. That's the age of the Spirit that we live in. Not only that, not only are all believers today prophets, think again about the Old Testament and anointing and the Spirit, all believers today are also what? Do you guys know what every believer is besides a prophet? Think of Old Testament roles. Every believer is also a priest. 1 Peter 1.5 uh, You are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All believers in this age are prophets and priests before God, the indwelling Holy Spirit making it so. That's true of you and me today, and it's been true since Pentecost. Now, what we're not saying, so if you're uncomfortable, there's so much we're not getting into today, but if we're uncomfortable and you're like, what does this mean, Mike? So let me qualify this a couple different ways. On the front end, we're not saying uh, every prophet or priest in the Old Testament, they, didn't, they weren't used by God in exactly the same way. If you say, here are these prophets, and, and some prophesy about one thing, or some prophesy now, and others prophesy later, to say that they're all prophets isn't to say that God's using, speaking to them, speaking through them in all the same way. It wasn't true in the Old Testament, isn't true in the New Covenant, in the age of the Spirit. So we're not saying that. We're also not saying a few other things. We are not saying that all have what the New Testament calls the gift 
of prophecy. In, Act, or excuse me, in Ephesians 4, prophets are one of those foundational gifts that equip the rest of the church to serve. Ephesians 4. In 1 Corinthians 12, near the end of the chapter, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions, each question of which would be answered with the same answer, no. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. So we're not saying everybody's the same in the way God speaks to or through. We're not saying everybody's gifted as a prophet. We're also not saying this, that God speaking through His children today in the age of the Spirit is not in a way equivalent with the Scriptures. Now guys, this is true not only now, it's tr- it was true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament. If you read through the act, excuse me, through accounts in both Old and New Testament, you will see references to people prophesying, and the prophecies are not recorded. They weren't treated as God's word the way others were. So we're not saying to say that everybody has been raised to the level of prophet and priest in the New Testament, in the age of the Spirit, is to say that all of us are somehow adding to the completed version of God's Word, the Scriptures. We're not. And Scripture doesn't. Old or New Testament doesn't make that equivocation either. We're not saying every dream and vision someone experiences is from the Lord. I'm not saying every time you think you have a word from the Lord for somebody else that you do. Okay? But you might. But here's the thing, and this is really, to me, this is the caution. <laughs> we're, in a, we're in a solid, conservative Bible church, are we not? God's Word is the deal. And Mike, you start talking about hearing from God and speaking for God, and you're leaving me behind. Here's the deal. In making these qualifications, we don't want to think, act, and live as if the Spirit is not in us isn't speaking to us, and doesn't intend to speak through us. Okay? If you so qualify this passage, you deny what God is doing. You're not part of what He's doing. You're denying it. Part of what's happened is this. About 120 years ago, around the turn of the century, 1900, the modern Pentecostal charismatic movement began. Topeka, Kansas, by the way, was in the middle of that. So to the degree or in the way that the the presence, the reality of the Spirit is here, I say great. But anybody with clear-eyed thinking at all knows, look at the Pentecostal charismatic movement and what do you see? Often, not always, but often, lousy theology, heterodoxy, not orthodoxy, and lousy practice. Bad theology and bad practice. And I say, yeah, absolutely. Guys, my first several years as a Christian, all I knew was the charismatic church. It's all I knew. I grew up in it as a brand new Christian. I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. And oftentimes I'm thinking, Lord, are you in any of this? Have I heard? Where is this? But this is the thing. We don't let someone else's bad theology or practice keep us from hearing from God, being led by God, and speaking to others as God leads. That's bad theology. That is bad practice. Do you see what I'm saying? You qualify this too much, you've written off the age of the Spirit. You've written off the gift of God. 
We aren't part of what God's doing. We're denying what God's doing. So we want to qualify this appropriately. But guys, in making those qualifications, we don't write off we are in the age of the Spirit. Who gets the Spirit? Everybody. Who can hear from God? Everybody. Who can speak for God? Everybody. If we don't get that, guys, we're not reading our Bibles. That's Acts. That's Pentecost. That's right up through today. That's going on today. We're called to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 4. We're called to walk with the Spirit. We're called to keep in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5. Whatever else, committing to obeying God by following His Word in faithfulness through the presence, power, and person of the Holy Spirit should be our theology and it should be our practice. Before the modern charismatic movements, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. Hard-headed reformers and dissenters. And here I'm thinking of Scotland and England because I've, I've got books with these stories recorded. Guys, the stories that you can read, these are guys on their knees. These are guys that were martyred for the faith. These were guys that were imprisoned and persecuted because they were Protestants. And you know, back in the day, the 15s and 1600s, as the Reformation took hold, Who's on the throne in England? That determines whether I'm okay or I'm not. So just give you one story. One of the pastors was going to conduct a wedding. And I'll qualify this here in, in just a minute too because I don't want to make it sound like everything's the same. But these are hard-headed Protestants who may pay for their faith with their lives, okay? They're not wackadoodles. They're not wacky. They're hard-headed, prayerful men and, and men, women of God. There's a marriage coming up, and Mr. Brown is going to get married. And, and the pastor who's going to marry them does the wedding, but he tells the bride this. He said, love your husband well because you will not have him long. Three years later, he was visiting that family. He left early, the Browns. He left early in the morning before sunup, got on his horse, rode 11 miles away to visit another family. When he gets to that house, he says, we need to pray for sister so-and-so, Mrs. Brown. Why is that, they say? Well, because she's holding her husband's lifeless body. Because after I left, the redcoats came and they shot, her, shot him down in front of her. And, and they tell the rest of the story. The redcoats set up, said, are you going to change your, your faith? He said, no. They, uh, he asked his wife, are you good with me to leave? And she said, yes. And they shot and they murdered him in front of her. And they said, what do you think of her husband now? And he says, she said, I think more highly of him now than ever. These are hard-headed men and women. This is reality. This is the Spirit was speaking. He knew it. And so he told them. Charles Spurgeon in England, you know what? He didn't believe in charismatic gifts. He believed in cessationism. He knew he was living in the age of the Spirit. But you know what? Spurgeon himself recorded, you can read it, he recorded that time after time when he was preaching, he would point an individual out in the congregation. Guys, this sounds like a crazy charismatic meeting today. This was Spurgeon. Spurgeon would point out an individual in the crowd and he would say something to him right in the moment because even though he didn't believe in the gift of prophecy as continuing, he knew God was telling him something. And he knew he was telling him something for this individual. And in the midst of his sermons, he interrupts them and he tells this person, what the most famous is the shoe cobbler, stayed open for business on Sunday instead of coming to church. 
And Spurgeon tells him, you stayed at home, you worked in your shoe shop, and this is how much you made. Is your soul worth that much? And of course, what happened to the guy? He repents and he came to faith. These are hard-headed people. This isn't wackadoodle. This guy named Chris Christensen, a biography I read years ago. This is, in the, this is before the Iron Curtain fell. He's a guy, I think he's Dutch, and uh, he knows God wants him to take Bibles to Russia, Soviet Union. So he loads his car up and gets in. I don't remember how he hid them or how this was going on. But he gets to a registered church. I think it was Moscow. I can't find my book, so this is all by memory. Uh, he gets to this church. Now, remember, in those days, every church that was open was sanctioned by the Soviet Union, by the atheists. They ran the, the church. And so you knew when you went there that there's KGB agents here. But also, if I want to go and gather with some of God's people, that's where I can do it. So he goes. He goes in the lobby of the church, the back of the church. It's crowded. He's a Westerner. He's never been here before. He feels uncomfortable. And this guy comes up to him and says, do you have Bibles? And he's like, oh, man, I'm busted. I just got here. How did he know? And so he says to the guy, what do you mean? And the guy says, well, I was in prayer this morning, and God told me there'd be a Westerner here with Bibles. Do you have the Bibles? Yes, I do. And here they are. Now, guys, these stories, if you hear these stories, you're like, wow. I think for me, and maybe for you, maybe for most of us, what God's showing us things and speaking through us may not look like that. In, In my own life, I would say it's more like this. It's a nudge. It's an impulse. I had two occasions when I was a new believer. I cringe. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed to even tell you today. I had two occasions where I knew I was in front of someone and I knew God gave me one short sentence to say. I knew it. It was like water in my mouth. I could open my mouth and spit it out or I could swallow it. You know what I did? To my shame, my first thought was, oh man, what are they going to think if I say that? And I swallowed. Didn't say it. Would have been easy. Would have been easy. I knew that was God. I knew the impulse to say, are you a Christian? That was God. I knew to say, Jesus is Lord, that was God. And I said, no, because you can. But those impulses, sometimes when you're praying, you'll get an impulse to pray for someone. I assume that's the Spirit saying, pray for them. Or sometimes maybe when you're giving, you'll have an impulse. You know what? I've thought about somebody. I want to give money to so-and-so. And you'll find out later, that was timely. That was God. So we don't have to be, we don't have to think, I saw this panorama of heavenly vision. Or I got up and said, thus says the Lord, to know that God can speak to me and speak through me to others. And so my appeal this morning is to say, we better think and act and live like we have the Holy Spirit or we are faithless. And we need to be sensitive, and it does require a sensitivity to say, Lord, help me, help me be on the same page with you this morning. You know, when I'm getting it, I want to think your thoughts. You know, as I'm in your word, I want you to stir me. I want you to point things out. In all of this, we, of course, say this. Nothing God does contradicts the word of truth, the scriptures. Nothing. God doesn't lie. doesn't change his mind. Nothing contradicts the scripture. There's other times in which you might say, 
I think God showed me this or spoke this to me, or I think God might want to say this to someone else, in which you can say, God also says that he validates things through the witness or the testimony of two or three different people. Had a conversation just this last week in which a brother was sharing with me. You know, somebody told me something, and I'm thinking, is that from the Lord? And then I heard the same thing from another person the same week. It's like, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust that's from you. So that's the thing. We live from Pentecost thus far. We live in the age of the Spirit. And every believer has been filled with, not just anointed on, filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can hear from God. First John says, you don't need anyone to teach you, though there are people in the church gifted to teach. It says the Holy Spirit Himself will teach you. That's the age of the Spirit. And God teaching and revealing things to us should enable us to speak to others too. And we can do this in a careful sense, right? You might say, I think God wants me to say this to somebody else. I've got this impulse. Well, I can say, hey, have you thought about this? Or, or I don't know if this is from the Lord or not, but here it is. You, you test it out. We should lean in the direction of what God's telling us. His sons and his daughters, his servants of either sex, they get the Spirit. God communicates to them. God communicates through them. That is the age you and I live in today. Okay, I feel strongly about this. <laughs> this is the age of the Spirit. We should live with an expectancy that the Spirit will speak, will lead, will guide us so that Christ is honored, others hear the gospel, believers are built up in faith. We live as faithless paupers. Emphasis on both, faithless to God and personally bankrupt. If we don't take God at His word, trusting Him to reveal Himself and to use us to bless others because the Spirit is given, because Jesus is ensconced in heaven as victor and king. Why don't you rise, and if we have the text, we'll read it together, and let me pray anyway. Lord God, help us not be faithless to You and to the gift You've given Lord, it was predicated on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The Spirit couldn't come until Jesus sat as victor in heaven. He sits there today at your right hand. The Spirit is given. Help us to live, think, act, and speak as those who believe in Jesus, Jesus' King and Victor, who have His Spirit in His name for His honor and glory. Amen. Let's read this. Okay, now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ.